everybody. This is Jane Douglas Keene, and in a moment you're going to be hearing Rich Duncan and myself talking to Alan Baxter, but uh, first I wanted to tell you about something super, super cool. Um, over at Josh Mailerman's site, joshmailerman.com, as we speak, um, there's a new thing there called Carpenter's Farm, or rather it should be there. Um... It's a serial novel that Josh is giving away just out of the kindness of his heart. It's fucking great. I'm fucking stoked about it. And I'm going to hitch a ride with him for a good portion of the journey. Um, I hope you love what I have to add to it. And I know you'll love what Josh does with it. Because, well, because I know. So do check that out. And now let me blast your eardrums out with some noise. Um, this is Shane Douglas Keene, and I'm here tonight with my partner, Rich Duncan. Uh, Laurel sadly couldn't make it tonight. She had some issues with a puppy dog who is now doing fine as far as we know. Um, but uh, it just got, got in the way this time around. We'll miss her, but she'll be back. Um, we're here today with... Um, Author Alan Baxter, sorry, Rich just messaged me, so you guys get to hear me bitching about that. Don't distract me, Rich. <laughs> um, um, we're here. We're here talking to Alan Baxter, who is the author of um, Manifest Recall, the new short story collection, Served Cold. Um, well, I'm drawing the, a blank on the other one from Gray Matter Press, Devouring Dark. Uh-huh. Um, and a whole slew of other stuff, and we're going to talk about as much as we can. Um, and Alan has some exciting shit coming down the pike, too, so we hope to talk about that. Alan, welcome, and thank you for being here, sir. Thanks for having me. I hope I don't sound too rough. I'm a bit under the weather, so I sound like I've got a 60-day habit at the moment. I don't normally sound quite so rough. Oh, you know, you sound fine. You're all right. Um, I sound like I have a 60-day habit because I do most of the time. But. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Alan, normally we kind of kick things off by um, 
asking our guests to kind of give like a a new kid at school speech, kind of maybe how you got into writing and, you know, just a little bit about yourself for uh, any new readers out there who aren't familiar with you. Uh, sure, sure. Um, well, it's a long speech if I want it to be these days. I've been in this game for a while now. Um, I first started publishing back in 2006. Um, I've got seven novels, a couple of short story collections, five or six novellas now. Um, I tend to write mostly in the sort of horror and supernatural and weird crime kind of genres. Um, and uh, it seems like I can't stop writing in a variety of different lengths. So just recently put out a couple of novellas and my last published um, last year was a short story collection, Surf Cold, that you mentioned. Um, currently working on a couple of other novels as well. I've got a new novella coming out later this year as well. So all sorts of stuff going on. Yeah, that's that's pretty um, pretty cool. Um, Shane and I have been fans of you for a while. I think the first one that I read um, was uh, Manifest Recall. And, uh, you know, like you had said, you kind of write with a bunch of different genres. And that was one of the things I liked about that novella in particular, because um, our site, you know, focuses on both horror and crime. And I felt that that one, uh, that one mixed the genres together quite well. And um, I know you do a bunch of different genres, but I didn't know if there were any, you know, combinations that, you know, you felt you feel work, you know, better together. It's weird. I mean, I've said it before. Like, I never met a genre I didn't like, so I tend to tend to mash all the time. Um, most of what I write is somewhere in the sort of dark fantasy and horror spectrum, because um, usually, you know, I write this sort of weird fantastic stuff. It's always dark, uh, um, very big influence on me and my work. Um, and if nothing else, there always seems to be some sort of crime mystery element that gets involved in what I do as well. Like there's frequently um, sort of things of organized crime and that sort of stuff in the background of, of what I do. Manifest Recall in particular, um, I sort of explored and focused a bit more on. Um, Devouring Dark is another one that's a novel that basically my London gangster novel supernatural assassin. Um, and so, yeah, so different books to different degrees um, explore those sorts of things. But it's, uh, it's sort of, really dark fantasies and crime crammed together are the two that I seem to default to all the time. And then even um, with the uh, the books you've written with uh, David Wood, which tend more toward kind of a Michael Crichton feeling kind of thing, if uh, Michael Crichton wrote stuff I liked. Um, <laughs> And uh, even even in those, to some degree, the second one sticks out, um, had some crime elements in them. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, with that stuff, with, when I write with David Wood, the, uh, the real focus tends to be um, a sort of uh, action-adventure kind of uh, yeah. thing going on. Um, they're really like sort of Indiana Jones, Dan Brown kind of um, at, at their base. Um, but because it's Dave and I working together, then like with the Jake Crowley series, it always tends to be uh, lean a little bit towards the pole. Um, so we get um, sort of various bad guys and various occult issues going on with those. Um, and with the Sam Aston investigations, uh, they're always giant monsters that are um, still with that sort of 
uh, kind of Indiana Jones kind of feel to them. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of Dave and I trying to draw on our strengths and combine them. You know, like Dave's Dave's Dave Maddock series, for example, is, is a real action adventure. It's like, uh, it's like an old uh, uh, sort of Doc Savage meets Indiana Jones meets James Bond kind of vibe going. Those books are really fun. So when he and I write, it's a bit like that, but with that dark, weird vision. Um, yeah, you cut you cut out a little bit on that last part, but uh, um, the uh, God damn it, Alan! I lost my train of thought. So slap me. I do this all the time. Ask Rich. <laughs> but uh, let's uh, moving on from that. I wanted to. Um, explore some of the um, more recent stuff you've done. Um, we wanted to talk, of course, about Manifest Recall because we love that book, and we want to talk about Serve Cold, and that's the one I'm going to kind of do, kind of uh, delve into here. Laurel has read a lot more of it than Rich or I. I don't know if Rich has had a chance to look at it at all yet. Um, but... Uh, I am reading it and I am loving it. Um, especially, especially the titular story was just just uh, kicked me in my private parts. That one was <laughs> fantastic, um, and they just get better from there. So um, I wanted. To, I was curious. I had never really seen any uh, Alan Baxter short work before, so um, I was curious about your background with that. Well, sure. I mean, it's it's a funny thing. Um, I started with novels. Um, I've always loved short stories. I've always loved reading them. Um, I never really took very seriously attempts to write them. Um, but then once I had a couple of novels out, and lots of times people sort of say, oh, you know, you should get some short stories published. It's a great way to get your name out there, help people discover your novel. Um, which is true to some degree. Um but it's not as simple as just going, oh, okay, then I'll write some short stories because they're really hard to write. Um, but then I, because I love short stories so much anyway, I just, and then when I decided to write one or two, discovered how difficult they were. Um, I decided that that was a challenge I would write to, and I would I'd figure out how to write short stories. So it became a thing then. That, um, and, yeah, right back sort of in the early aughts or mid-aughts that I was sort of starting on that, Half, I started trying to learn how to write short stories and slowly got better at it and slowly got published in, um, you know, better and better venues. It eventually sold a story to fantasy and science fiction magazine. It was always a grail for me of short stories. And um, that was some years ago, and I've never been able to sell another one since. Um, but I did it once. Um, but that, but that's like the holy grail of short yeah. story publications. Mm -hmm. That's it. That was always the top of my list, and it was always like if I could sell anywhere, it would be there. Now I have that on time, so that's cool. I'm constantly trying to put it. Yeah, I, I will, but uh, meanwhile, I've done it the once. Um, but then in 2016, Ticonderoga, Ticonderoga Publications in Australia here um, published my first short story collection, which is called ProShine, um, and that won an award. It got nominated for all three of the Australian National Honor Awards, won the Australian Shadow. Um, the best collection, so that's when I sort of felt like I sort of come into my own a bit with short fiction. And then it was a, a few years later, and I 
started working a little bit with Grey Matter Press and I had a, a bunch of new work since Crowshine came out. We got chatting about that. Um, and so decided to put together um, another collection and uh, that was uh, Pulp, which, which came out at the end of last year. Um, and it's, yeah, and it's, I hate to fanboy too much because, you know, I try to stay re- professional. Um, and if you believe that, you probably haven't been listening to the podcast. Um, but it is, a, it is a stellar collection, in my opinion, as far as I've gone. Um, Laurel Hightower said the same thing about it, and I've heard nothing but good from other people who've talked about it. So, And it's kind of funny. You talked about um, you started with novels. And I think you're yeah. the only this you're only the second or third author, third author I've ever talked to who said they wrote a novel first. Um, one was yeah, Sean Hamill. One was yeah, a lot of people. Go ahead. Sorry, I was saying a lot of people do should start with short stories um, and sort of work their way up to a novel. It never even really occurred to me. I just decided I'm not writing. And um, but then yeah, subsequently discovered it was much harder to write a story. Oh, <laughs> right. yeah. Sorry, sorry. Um, yeah. Um, I, like Sheen said, like I was, I've only heard that a few times too. But like, um, I'm trying to remember, and Sheen might be able to help me. I think it might have been John, where we like kind of talked about how it's almost like different like uh skill sets almost i don't know if that's how it feels like for you or if you feel that it's kind of you know natural for you to just do both well it is now um because i've been doing sort of both for a long time but even then i can't always like for example you talked about manifest recall before when i started that i thought i was running a short when i had the idea the original idea for it, it was in my mind it was a short story and then as I started writing it I realized how much bigger an idea it was. So, oh, and then it turned out to be a novella. Um, so sometimes I know absolutely um, whether something is a short idea or a big idea for a novel or whatever. Sometimes I'm not so sure now. I think it's sort of partly because like that's kind of my mindset now that um, I just kind of I just kind of come up with stories and story ideas float around until they go less outside. That's the thing I'm going by. Um, but uh, it, it does kind of come naturally to me now. If I finish a novel, then I tend to go, right, that was a big project. I'll sit and I'll write to a fish before I tuck in the next big novel project, assuming I don't have a deadline like that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, it is kind of natural. I still don't know. Anyone else? Yeah, and not to get too far off track, but I know that you said, um, you know, with your short fiction that you had won an Australian Shadows Award. And I always wanted to ask someone about this because I've seen it around, but you're the first... first guess we've had that's actually won one and not to start any controversy because the stoker award has a cool statue too but that the australian shadows award that's a damn cool trophy and it looks pretty big too yeah it is the finest trophy in, in horror 
I, 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 agree. Agree. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. It's uh, it's kind of insane. I got three of them sitting there staring down at me from the shelf <laughs> all the time I'm working, which is amazing. I do love the Stoke Reward uh, trophy, though. That is a trophy, and I would dearly love to score one of those one day. Um, but uh, but yeah, the uh, the Australian Shadows Award. It, uh, it's see, there's there's three there's three sort of major national awards in Australia. Uh, there's the Dipmars, which are a little bit like the Hugo's in the way that they're rough. It's fan across the board, genre, and lots of stuff. Uh, then there's the Orialis Award, which are across the board, genre, lots of, every category is capable, but they're all jury. So there's a group of judges convened for each category. Um, and there's science fiction, fantasy, horror, etc. Uh, and then there's the Australian Shadows Award, which are, again, juried. So there's, uh, there's panels of judges convened for each subject, but it's only for dark fiction. Um, so dark fiction and horror. Uh, and it's novel, uh, collection, edited publication, short story, and there's Paul Haynes' Paul Belong, which is sort of a novella. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's good that Australia has an award specifically for horror and dark fiction, kind of like the Stoke, I suppose, now. Uh, but yeah, it's a juried award, and uh, and so and, and by far the coolest trophy in <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the first time I had seen it was, um, ironically, I think I was on your blog like shortly after I found Manifest Recall, and I've always wanted to ask someone about it because it's it's just so striking. <laughs> yeah, uh, they stand about a foot tall. So, oh man, <laughs> yeah. So they're pretty cool. Like when you when, when you see them on the shelf, um, if you if, if you go to my website, um, uh, I think it's uh, on the uh, if, if you go to my website on the about Alan page, I think. Yeah. yeah. There's uh, scroll down a bit, and there's a thing that so there's some sort of trade paperback side books and, and the three books I had that give you an idea of scale. So uh, yeah. You can see that some of the books on that shelf are paperback size. There's some trade paperbacks. There's a hardcover approach, and the and the trophies are far taller than all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, to another th- another thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, I know we kind of already started talking about the writing, but a little bit about yourself that I thought was cool. Um, is you're involved in uh, martial arts, and I believe it's kung fu that you practice and that you uh, teach. And Shane and I were always curious, you know, how you kind of got involved into in that, and you know, kind of, you know, what it's meant to you over the years. Mm. Yeah, that is. I mean, it's martial arts has been a um, major part of my life since forever. Like I started when I was a kid. When I was um, a little kid, I, I got bullied a bit, and my dad used to do judo, and he was like, well, you know what, maybe just uh, learn to throw people on their ass every once in a while. Because, you know, sometimes people are dickheads, and there's only, they only speak one language. Um, and so I started doing judo, and I loved it at the time. I did it for a couple of years. <clears throat> um, but then my judo teacher moved away, uh, and a karate teacher took over that spot, um, for that class at that location. So a lot of the kids just switched and started doing karate. And um, when I looked into that, I did it for a year or so, but it just didn't really fit with me. I, and so I decided I needed to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. Um, and at the time, I was an absolute addict to uh, the Monkey TV show, that, that, that one, that, with Monkey and Trippity Taka and Journey to the West, all that sort of stuff. 
and I, so I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to do that stuff. So what does he do? And I figured out that it was a Chinese story and it was Kung Fu that he did. Um, so I went looking for Kung Fu schools um, and did that ever since from, from the age of, I don't know, like 12 years old. Um, and then when I moved to Australia, one of I, I did a few different styles of Kung Fu, um, practiced different things. And one of the styles that I liked the most um, that seemed to really fit me the most was a style called Toilet Park. Um, and when I came to Australia, I was just traveling at the time, subsequently met my wife and ended up staying here. Um, but one, the, the main grandmaster of that style was based in Sydney. Um, so it just felt like coming home. So I just started training with him. And, uh, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Cause, um, like I had always, um, known that you, have done that but i was just always curious about you know how you got involved in it and two um like when i was on your i was on your website earlier today for something else um thinking of you know different things to ask and i was pretty impressed to learn that you were a british national champion <laughs> yeah that was the year before i left australia my my teacher at the time was then um, very upset with me that I moved away, and so I wasn't there the following year to defend the title. Um, but uh, yeah, I used to I used to compete a lot. Um, obviously, not so much these days. So I'd, I'd rather teach other people to compete now. Um, but uh, I used to compete a lot, and then about six months before I went travelling, I took part in that, in, in that particular style of British National Championship. So that was like back in '95. So, um, for everybody listening, what that whole conversation thread was about is if you ever fuck with me again, my friend Alan Baxter is going to kick your ass. (laughs) (laughs) I do. uh, I'm the one always, like, if there's a convention and somebody has to get back to a hotel at night, everyone (laughs) You get the You get to be the bodyguard. Yeah, I don't mind it either. I'm quite happy <laughs> well yeah well why else learn it if you can't use it in some <laughs> useful way yeah well you know technically speaking the uh the reason the reason you learn is so you never have to use it more unless you have kids, uh, um, and, unless you ever need it but uh, it's good and it works say, yeah 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 it's better to be a warrior in the garden so yeah, crazy kind of works that way too for me. Um, <laughs> but it, but it's kind of the opposite too because I have to act crazy for people to leave me the fuck alone. I don't have to, you know, know anything about being crazy for them to be leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> they, don't need to know about, they don't need to know about you either. Just yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. No, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a smartass, but uh, um, <laughs> fascinating subject to me because I've been discovering more and more lately um, that some of my favorite authors are actually into martial arts. You know, like you and I think John May John Mayberry and Joe Lansdale, and you know, pretty big list. Yeah. I could go yeah, on. Around. There's a good crossover, and I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that um, actual martial arts, the key word is arts, you know, like it is, it is artistic form of self expression. So, a lot of people who are 
creative are also drawn to being physically expressive too. So there's uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap between the martial arts and the creative. Art. And I think yeah, that that kind of makes sense with. Um I mean, just about anything you do outside of the, if you're a creative, it's like, you know, I write poetry and I play music and I sing and, you know, about a zillion other fucking things that I don't really share with other people. But, um, and it seems like every creative I know is that way. And it makes sense that looking at martial arts, like an, it, it's an expressive form of, uh, it's an expressive sport. You know, so there, there's a lot more yeah. going on there visually than with most sports. You know, um, it's uh, deceivingly beautiful because it's also deadly in the right hand. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And, and it's, it's a form of self. Right? It's a form of self. So, um, you know, everybody, you can, you can go to any teacher of my style. Um, even those of us who've learned directly from my teacher, and we will each teach and act and perform a little bit differently because in the hands of someone else and art become expressive. So, you know, I like it to having an accent. Um, so that sort of, that sort of thing you, you tend to discover through the arts when the more you do it, the more you see it. So. Hmm, I didn't. Yeah. I, that's interesting. I didn't. I took uh, about three months worth of karate when I was a younger man and discovered that I have uh, authority issues. And the guy that I had authority <laughs> issues with could kick my ass, so I walked away. <laughs> well, finding the right teacher is usually about finding the right teacher. Yeah. And then that's what it was. This guy was a snot. Uh, yeah, it's up on the way. <laughs> uh, so. Alan, I was just curious to, um, I know, you know, Served Cold is your most recent release with uh, Grey Matter Press, but you've also done, you know, what Manifest Recall, Devouring Dark, and uh, your recently announced follow-up to Manifest Recall. And I was just yep. curious how you uh, how you met up with uh, Tony and Sharon from Grey Matter Press. Um. It was interesting, actually. There's, um, and this is another link to talking about short stories. Uh, you know, the way they can help you read, they can help directly because readers um, discover your short fiction and then potentially go looking for your longer work. Um, but also, it puts you on the radar of um, other professionals in the industry. Um, and I discovered, I will, I discovered Grey Matter Press, and, and they discovered me through. Uh, an anthology called Suspended in Dusk. So editor Simon Dewar um, put together the first Suspended in Dusk. Oh, yeah. Um, I can't even remember when that was now. It was a while ago. Um, and it came out through, um, I can't remember, Books of the Dead Press, I think it might have been. Yeah. Um, and then he put together a second one. Like The first one was quite a success. He put together a second one, and he asked a couple of us who would written the first one. Would we come back and write again for the second one? He subsequently then with other people, new people. Um, and then the relationship between him and I think it was Books of the Dead, I, sorry if I get that wrong, but that relationship kind of fell down. And so he ended up with this book with uh, great stories, um, but no publisher for it. So he started looking for a publisher to pick up Suspended in Dust 2 um, and ended up 
talking to Grey Matter Press and, and they picked it up and through that um, Tony at Grey Matter Press was really pleased to see that I was in the second book because he really enjoyed my story in the first book so he read that <coughs> excuse me, excuse me. Um, and so because because he'd read that um, he was then aware of my work and then he also really enjoyed my story in the second book and, and that got us talking that, that sort of put us on each other's radar um, that was, I was going to say, I, I had forgotten that you had pieces in those, but um, yeah. stellar, stellar anthologies. Yeah, and, yeah, they're yeah. really good book. Yeah, yeah and they were, fact, did a really one, good one job of, with that. Yeah, and one of my three Australian Shadows Awards, the first one that I won, uh, was actually for my story in First Suspended in Dust. Um, and the novel Devouring Dark is a sequel to that story so yeah well you you know i'm almost kind of embarrassed to admit this but like i had read that years and years ago and i i really enjoyed it um i love that anthology and i had no idea because i always thought the first thing i read from you was manifest recall but i read a uh, ton of go. books so i had probably just forgotten but yeah that was yeah. a great anthology yeah, yeah, they, they are both really good, really good, very anthologies, and it's a shame they don't get a little bit more attention. But you know, hopefully, at time will. They're, they're both, they're both just packed full of fantastic stories. There's not a weak story in either. In either book. Yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah, so do I. Um, like I said, Dewar did a really good job with that, and he picked up. In both books, line lineups of some of the greatest authors I've read, you know, and um, presented a lot of discoveries for me. Um, you and uh, Karen Rung, in particular, but I was really yeah, impressed with that. And it's good to see. Sorry, I was just saying, I was just agree with you. Yeah, Karen's work is so good. Uh, yeah, she's stellar. <laughs> That's someone we need to get on here sometime, too. Um, something else that I'm interested in is uh, you have one of the things is, that's kind of distinctive about you is that, and especially when it comes to indies, is that you've published with quite a few different publishers. And I always wonder with authors like that, I mean, you know, not like hundreds, but um, is that by design that you like to spread yourself around? like that or is that just how it gets shopped and who buys I was a little bit of both I mean it would be great to have a relationship uh, with a sort of big mainstream press and always bought everything and paid back advances always really work out but it just doesn't really work like that these days um, I've, I've got I've published quite a bit of work with Griffin Press um, and Grey Matter Press my three Alex Kane books that trilogy um, is actually published um, in Australia by Harper Collins on their voyage. Um, so that's like my kind of my big five publishing on, on bookshelves, uh, on bookshop shelves like trilogy. Um, but that was just in the Australia, New Zealand region. Uh, Voyager in the US decided to take so Subsequently, when Hidden City was being shopped around, even Voyager Australia decided that they didn't want to pick up. They were the only Voyager Australians in lots of ways. They're doing less and less. Um, of anything really um, in genre at least Harper Collins obviously is still a big 
still probably Australia's biggest publisher, but um, the Voyager list is doing a lot less. Um, and so it's a bit it's a bit of a necessity thing, and also because a lot of what I write being horror, I it's a bit niche. It's often a case that it's difficult to get mainstream interest. But indie press and, and small press, mid-side press around the place are just doing amazing work. Um, so I've ended up, I've got work with PS Publishing in the UK, with Britain, with, uh, with Greymap Press in the US, with my underwriting publications in Australia. Um, so, yeah, it's really a case of finding people prepared to pick up what I write. Because I, I never really write to market. I always write what I want to write and then see who's interested in buying it. So, which is what good writers do I mean I guess yeah. opinionated I think I mean people think when I say that sometimes but the best writers write for themselves and then find their audience yeah I, I think it's true like, I, I don't ever want to feel like I'm writing for um, writing to try to sell something I want to write because I want to write a story that I, that I write I think that's always the first point for me that um, I'm going to write the story that I want to write and then she will take things from there. Um, sorry, I uh, took an anxiety pill right before we started this, so I'm a little loopy. Um, the, something else something else that I've been fascinated about since I started reading indies, because I, I was new to indies, what, Five six years ago now, Rich. Yeah, um, yeah, or maybe even longer than that. Yeah, yeah, but um, I st- it fascinates me how many of you motherfuckers are Australian or New Zealander. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, really, there's some some killer talent coming out of there. You know, no offense about the motherfucker. I'm totally joking. Um, <laughs> That's but, totally uh, man. You know, I mean. You've got, um, I'm drawing a blank on her last name, Lee. I want to say Miller. Sorry. Um, and uh, J.H. Moncrief, J.S. Brucolar. I'm probably massacring all their names. But oh, I'm, she's Canadian, actually. Yeah. Oh, is she? I thought yeah, she Mon- was a... Mon- uh, she's Canadian. Um, Brucolar is, is, uh, is Australian. Lee Murray is uh, a Kiwi. Yeah, New Zealand. We've got Aaron Dries, Aaron Warren, Robert Wood, people like that over here as well in Australia. There, there is a lot of stuff out in Australia. We're always trying to get, we're always over here waving, trying to get noticed by people. <laughs> but yeah, there's some huge talent. There's some, some stellar crime writers there too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, writers in general, but genre writers especially, there really is, um, some really good talent in Australia and around uh, Australia and New Zealand. Another one is uh, Dan Raybart's if you do another fantastic author. Yeah, and kind of on Shane's point, that was something that I was going to ask you um, as well, because we we've asked, you know, certain guests, you know, kind of about the, uh, you know, like this, the writer scene around there and, you know, if there's like lots of readings or kind of what the community's like. And I was just kind of curious, you know, what is the horror community like in terms of like relationships between the writers and stuff like that in Australia? 
Well, it, the community itself is incredibly supportive. When I when I first discovered the community, it was, I was blown away by how friendly and supportive everyone was. It really is. Um, everybody's in it together. That people are happy to help each other. One of the big issues that we have um, with Australia is um, a massive land mass population. Um, so it means that you know we could be. Um, we, like if someone's in Melbourne, someone's in Sydney, and someone's just like that, that's 3,000 kilometers. So it, when it comes to physically interacting, um, it can be a bit of an issue. There are a few um, sort of national conventions. There's, there's always Continuum in Melbourne. There's SwanCon in Perth. There's Complex in Canberra. Um, and every couple of years, there's uh, Rockwell Jonathan up in Brisbane. Um, and a lot of the time, people do make the effort and travel to conventions. And, uh, for me, these days, I've been in this game for as long as I have. Um, a lot of the time, I go to conventions. It's great to, for industry and you know, panels and whatever, but most of it just happens um, because we've all only talked for so long and we only tend to get together when we go to conventions. Um, but the industry itself is incredibly supportive. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty interesting um, because, you know, I always know I like kind of how you said, you know, it's a big landmass and a small population. Um, Like I I've always been like a big fan of like independent music and stuff. And I actually one of the labels that I always like is a label called Hobbledehoy. I'm probably screwing that name up. But uh, it was founded by a guy named Tom in Melbourne. So, like, I got into a lot of, like, these Australian indie rock bands. And I was always curious about that because, like, you kind of look at it on the map. And, like, I know Australia's big, but you don't really think about it, you know? Yeah, and it's, not only is it big, but, like, 90% of the population is just on 10% of the land. Um, that, like, the... There's, there's a lot of towns and people in the in the sort of interior of Australia, but and they only sort of make up 10% of the population. So everybody's around the edge, particularly up and down the east coast and around the south. Um, but even then, it's you know the journey between any major cities is is pretty huge. Like Canberra's only about three hours from Sydney, but then Melbourne nine hours from there. So yeah, it's it can be like. Physically moving around Australia can be tricky. Flying around, obviously, makes more sense, but it's expensive. So, yeah, it can, it can be can be tricky. Yeah, and uh, that kind of kind of like uh, leads me into uh, your novella, The Rue. I I absolutely love that. Um, you know, I am kind of biased because Shane and myself and Laurel and a ton of other people in the horror community are in the Rue. Um, but one thing yeah. that I thought kind of cool about the genesis of that was, uh, like, I remember, I think, almost the exact day that Keelan had shared that cover. And uh, I know that you got roped into it pretty early on, you know, like people kept saying, like, how how it should be like a real book. And then, um, you know, you kind of got associated with it. And we all everyone thought that you should write it. And uh, I was just kind of curious, you know, I know it had um, the story itself kind of had uh, different beginnings. Um, and I was just kind of curious on how you decided to kind of meld like the, 
idea you had had germinating. I remember you writing about it on your blog and how you kind of made that mesh with like this awesomely, uh, it's like, you know, there is a serious message in there. I don't, I want to make sure people, um, get that because I thought that part was really well done, but also just for like the pure, like horror elements. Um, you know, there's like a ton of, a ton of really cool scenes, profanity and basically everything that, uh, Shane and I like when we watch like older horror movies and stuff. And it kind of had that feel to it. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it, when I was writing it, it was, you know, the Razorback was always back in my mind. I hadn't seen that in years. Um, I actually watched it again after I wrote the novella, um, and just realized what a classic it was. Um, but it, it, as much as anything, Guru was just really fortuitous time, um, because I'd just finished a big project um, and got a novel draft finished and I wanted it finished by year end um, and then I was going to take about a month or so off from any other big projects um, because I knew that early in the year the next um, project that Dave Wood and I were working on was going to kick off and so I thought you know that's fine that works well for me because I can have um, about a month or so and I'm just going to write two or three short stories um, not have any particular um, pressures or deadlines or stress to worry about um, and one of the short stories that I was going to write was uh, basically the background premise of what turned into the group. Um, and so the ideas of the underlying story, the underlying themes and all that, that had all been perfect for a while. I wanted to write that story. Um, and it was going to be a sort of some, I hadn't decided yet, but it was going to be some sort of monster in the outback framing for this, for these scenes and to explore those themes and that small outback out story. Um, and so when all this stuff kicked off, it was right about when I was about to start working on those things. And it was like, well, instead of writing two or three short stories, I could just write this one because, you know, if you're going to write a creature feature of that kind of classic epic B movie scale, it's got to be a page script or 150 page novella they, they pretty much match up um, and it was like well if I'm going to write this Outback Town story and I'm going to have to shoot all of that why not which was an insane idea but I was like well fuck it let's just see if I can make this work and so that's what I did and I just started and as it turned out because, the, because that background story had been percolating for a while but I didn't have a monster for it. And then everybody was like, dude, write about it, get a kangaroo. I like, so I put it in. All of a it, was, it was pretty much just a case of thinking of the most ridiculous and bizarre ways kangaroo, a kangaroo could kill people and using that to tell the story that I've been planning to tell along. Um, so the whole thing really came to get, it's just, it's just not the sort of thing that would ever um, happen like that with any frequency. You know, it's not the sort of thing you could ever really plan for or, um, yeah, yeah, like it's not like I could now go right. I'm gonna, I'm now gonna write a, a giant killer cow novella. <laughs> <laughs> the time and the framing and everything is is not the same. It's just, it was just very fortuitous. Um, and as it turned out, uh, it, I appear to have made a decent job of it because <laughs> people, people are really enjoying it. And honestly, it's one of my, one of the best-selling titles I've ever released. So. 
But there was there was that one that one douche that kept fucking with you and trying to get you to write more and more and more of them. <laughs> Coming up with all kinds of outlandish ideas. <laughs> I wanted to punch that fucker. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't the way. Whenever, and it's something to be aware of. Well, because first of all, um, I used to take it a bit more seriously and, and worry about these things. But a lot of the time, when people really enjoy it, they just want more of it. Um, and that's cool. Because, like with Devouring Dark, I've got people, I frequently get people message me or talk to me at conventions and stuff and they're like, oh, are we, are we going to get more stories, you know, more books with Matt and Amy? When's it going to be a tick bearing up? And the temptation is like, well, people really want this. Maybe I should write it. But it's like, well, I should only write it if I have a story for it. So the fact that people really want it is great because it means those things really resonate. But the last thing I want to do then is back up by writing another one because it seems popular but making a bad job. Um, and so... In some ways, it's like, well, you can only really write one Dillacat Blue story. Um, <laughs> but, you know, after that, after that, you're just kind of flashing it there and talking about Dillacat Blue. Equally, I do kind of, I deliberately wrote it with a, sort of a possibility in there that allowed the sequels. Um, it doesn't have to be a kangaroo necessarily. Once, you, once you've read the story, you know, you kind of understand that it is open, it could go other ways in other places. So, you know, never say never, I might write something else at some point in similar vein. Um, and I I do sort of toy with ideas from time to time about, you know, crazy things I could do. What, what about if it was not just one kangaroo, but a whole mob of kangaroo and a bigger town? Or, <laughs> so, you know, I, there's, there's, there's all sorts of ideas that crop up that, who knows, maybe one day it'll happen. Or a, crowd, uh, a crowd, ang- crowd of angry sloths or koalas or something would be cool, too. Yeah, well, and that's the other side of it, is that subsequently, you, you know, the, the thing is why I think people got really into it, people sort of tried to do things um, with the idea. Uh, Keelan said that he will throw covers at people if they want to write one of these things, so long as any profits they make um, go to animal rescue or uh, animal sanctuary charity and things like that. Um, and so subsequently, Max Booth uh, has um, started writing one about a giant killer armadillo. Um, somebody else, uh, James Savitar, I think, is doing one about a cassowary. Um, and I think, I can't remember who it is, but somebody's writing one about a possum. I think. So all of a sudden, there are going to be um, two or three more, at least, of these like, crazy um, murderous creature novels. So it's kind of spawned its own, like, Spin off with different authors working on it. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with and what happens. And it's for a really good cause. Um, it's really cool that he did put that together, and they, so many authors have jumped on that. Um, and it was kind of, I mean, it was at a time when, um, particularly in, particularly in Australia, there was a huge crisis with wildlife and wild animals um, because of those goddamn fires. Um, and that was almost simultaneous with when you wrote the Rue and you, and Keelan started putting that stuff together. So you know, yeah. I don't I don't believe in God, but God bless you. <laughs> well, thanks. But I should point out that my stuff with mine it wasn't set up for a charity one with mine. And uh, when I agreed to write the Rue, it just um, it I actually paid Keelan for the cover and we put it all together and we sort of. 
Um, I got uh, people to do the you know editing and stuff like that, put it out as a regular book. It was subsequently when lots of people started saying, "Oh, you didn't need to make the cover for this, you didn't need to make the cover for that." All of a sudden, the poor bastard was like, you know, can't <laughs> just be sort of churning out all these covers. And he said, "Look, I'll do a few more, but only if people I do before put the money to the charities." So, um, so yeah, so that was post mine. That was uh, after mine. But those guys doing those books currently, all the, yeah, their money, um, their, their cover money is going to charities. Yeah, yeah, which is super cool. Yeah, uh, but it's also that that same douche that was bugging you kept bugging <laughs> Keelan about different covers and stuff too. So <laughs> <laughs> well, these days now, I have to say something online, and somebody takes Keelan and goes, "Make a cover for this," to try to make it uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least it deflected onto Keelan mostly. So. <laughs> yeah, he's probably like, "What the hell?" But. Uh, yeah, for everybody listening, I was that douche I'm talking about. So. Um, I think everybody does that. <laughs> but yeah, everybody that, already fucking knew that. <laughs> but yeah, that whole that whole process of the route that was a really cool thing to witness because like everybody everybody was talking about it, and I don't know, it just had kind of a a different feel to it because, you know, people were kind of connected to it. You were gracious enough to put a lot of us in there. And, um, like it just had a really cool buzz about it. And it was cool to kind of see the, the reaction to it. Yeah, it was a really weird thing. It it definitely, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of became its own self-perpetuating engine a little bit after a while, because at first I was like, all right, fuck you guys. I'll write, I'll write it. Let's let's just see what, see what happens. I had this period of time. Um, and then as it turned out, I wrote it quicker than I would normally write anything because, like I mentioned before, the way that it sort of came together. Um, and then I decided, like, all these people that were bugging me online about writing it, it's like, well, fuck you guys, I'm going to kill all of you. Um, <laughs> just because I just, I just thought that was pretty funny. Um, but, of course, it didn't really occur to me at the time, but, of course, that just made people even more invested in it because everyone was like, oh, man, he's using our names. I can't wait to see how I die. <laughs> yeah, so, basically. <laughs> Yeah, That's what so, people started celebrating and congratulating each other and shit online. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so, I, yeah, so it kept that buzz alive, which is cool. Yeah, I had I had finished it up uh, fairly recently, and I was telling Shane and Laurel, I was like, I kind of got the best of both both worlds because I kind of showed up early in it. And, you know, I was in it for a decent amount of time, but then I also got the really cool death. So it's the best of both worlds there. Yeah, uh, I I had to stop thinking about who was who once the characters were rolling because I was like, oh, man, someone's going to be disappointed with this death. (laughs) (laughs) I was just just constantly trying to one up the death. They were just getting more like bizarre and insane and uh, (laughs) just just like a cinematic creature feature should do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, everybody's everybody's got a favorite. I think probably one of my favorites is Brennan the Father's Death. Um, that that was one I was just shaking my head and laughing as I wrote it because it was just so stupid. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but Rich, yours is up there. You're, with, with, uh, if you ever imagine this thing committed to film, that's uh, your your death in that is going to be one of the most amazing films amazing scenes ever filmed I think. <laughs> yeah yeah and i i definitely appreciate it because uh 
when I had when we had Hunter on here, I had told him I was like, I forget what we were talking about, but I was like, oh, you know, one of my bucket list items is to be a character in you know a horror novel that's just cannon fodder and gets you know gets killed pretty gruesomely. So I gotta thank you for making that bucket list item come true. Well, you're quite welcome. I'm glad I could provide the service. Yeah. <laughs> The only thing I would do different, and this I haven't read the book, so I'm not criticizing, but just this one thing I know I would be different as Rich would have been the first motherfucker I wasted. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, this is the thing when I was when I was writing it, the thing was pouring out of me, uh, and I had a general idea of the shape where I was going with it, but of course I, I had to keep because it's one of those things that has to be a large cast of characters because you need a lot of cannon body, you need a lot of people to die. Um, oh, yeah. So I would keep I would keep introducing people um, into the story because I would need new people to die and new things to happen and the story to move forward. Um, and so it would be frequently. I just had this whole list um, sitting on a notepad beside my computer of, of all the fuckers who were hassling me about. And every time I needed a new character, I just pick another name off the list. So when people popped up, I never knew quite how it was going to end up with them or how they might. Um, who you know who might die in good ways or bad ways, and at the time you know there was there were a handful of people who survived, um, and I didn't know about that either at the time who was necessarily going to survive. So yeah, in the process of the writing, I kind of surprised myself a little too. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun and it was uh, pretty cool to, you know, like I said, witness all of that and, you know, kind of the quick turnaround and stuff like that. You know, it was it was one of those really cool things. I don't think I've ever seen, you know, quite anything else like that in the horror genre. Yeah, and I don't think it could happen again. I like um, like I said, with the timing of everything, there's no way I, feel, I mean, it's close to 30,000 words. Um, and I actually went back and checked um, on my sort of backup files and stuff. I started writing it on December the 16th. Uh, and I train. published it on Jan. Yeah, yeah, on a train on the way to Sydney to hang out with a bunch of horror writers. Um, and then I published it on January 28th. So it was like less than six weeks from people going, hey, dude, you should write this book to me publishing the book. So there's no way I could have written a story like that in that sort of time unless the you know, the germ of the story was already in me anyway that I've been planning to write. Um, but also just because the sort of the buzz and the vibe was about it and people kept talking about it, I figured, you know, this is something that I need to capitalize on and keep happening um, a bit more quickly. And I was originally um, thinking, well, I'll release it sometime in February. That would be a pretty good turnaround in time. But then because it had so much talk about it online, and February is Women in Horror and it's like, well, I don't want to release... Um, uh, a book that's got a lot of buzz around it right in the middle of Women in Horror Month. That's a real pushy thing to do. Um, so I said to everybody, okay, this is going to release in the first week of March. But then people, I, you know, I got a couple of mates in the industry to do editing, to do layout for me and stuff like that. And they were all on board as well. They'd all been seeing what was going on and they're like, no worries. And they turned it around for me sort of super fun. Um, so all of a sudden it was like, um, okay, look, this can come out before the so, so I ended up up to my death. So, yeah, so, yeah, mental. This is not the sort of thing that could ever happen again. I don't think it was one of those uh, sort of like strike death. 
Yeah, I was pretty astonished, especially with how popular it turned out to be, because I don't know that I've seen somebody produce that long of a work in that short of a period of time before. You know, and that's why just having all those other people jump on and and uh, do fast turnarounds for you and stuff makes a huge difference in how fast you get it to market. Yeah, there's no way I could have, um, like I said, there's no way I could do it normally just in just in writing the thing. There's no way I could normally put out a 30,000 work um, book that I would be happy with in such a period of time. That in itself is unique. But then Helen really came to the party polishing up that cover and getting it done. Uh, David Wood um, is great with layout stuff, and he just turned it around pretty much overnight with the ebook and the, and the paperback for the layout, so that that was ready to go to publication. Um, AJ Spedding, Amanda Spedding, is a friend of mine. Uh, she's a fantastic editor, um, and she basically, I said to her, when do you reckon you can do an edit on this for me? When do you reckon you can do it? And she'd been following it online, and she was like, you give me a good death in it, and I'll do it, I'll do it for you this weekend, kind of thing. <laughs> and so... Uh, and, and she was already on the list anyway. She was already a character in it. Um, and so she put aside what she was working on, and instead of taking a weekend, she spent the weekend editing through and, and getting it back to me on the Monday. So, you know, just, just insane the way people all jumped on board and helped out. So another, you never do these things. You know, you sit in a room and make stuff up on your own, but anything good in publishing, you never really do on your own. Oh, yeah, not at all. And this one really turned into quite an event all around. Yeah. Um, now I'm seeing we're getting a little bit short time here, and I wanted to ask you some things while I still have the chance. Um, mainly, can you tell me, um, tell us, t- tell us whatever you can possibly spill about the follow-up to Manifest Recall? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting one. You know, we talk about when when things are popular and people want more and you question whether or not it's a good idea. Um, Manifest Recall was, was really well received. I was really pleased with how well received that book was. Um, and lots of people were like, oh man, we need more Eli Carver stories. Um, and so, and I was kind of into that idea because that, the whole sort of nature of that character with these ghosts just dogging him all the time and this, the snarky nature of it and the violence and the sort of crime and the, all the sort of noir elements that I love to do. Um, it was like, well, there is a potential there to write a lot more stories with that character. Um, and so I talked to Tony at Grey Man of Press and I was like, you know, people are into this. What do you think? Do you reckon this is worth a sequel? Um, and the, the short version is it's like we, we can see this being um, potentially a, a novella series. We could potentially end up with several like half stories um and so the decision was that, okay well let's let's do the follow-up um and see how it goes and if people are into it then maybe we'll do some more um and so it also then required finding some way uh to sort of bring eli back into the fold as it were because um at the end of manifest recall without any spoilers at the end of manifest recall he just basically slopes off and goes into hiding Excuse me. Um, and so, with uh, the, the the sequel is called Recall Night, um, and it basically starts with Eli getting an opportunity to get back into regular life, not have to be in hiding anymore. 
Um, and so he decides that he'll head back to the States and he'll just basically try to find his feet again and see if he can get on with anything close to a normal life. Uh, and he has a contact in, in New York City. So he um, heads off to New York City, or he's on his way to New York, um, to look up this, there's a bit of a scumbag mobster, but it's the only sort of person he knows who might give him some work or get him a start on it. Uh, but on the train, he meets someone uh, and she tells him an interesting story and he agrees to help her out. Uh, but of course, with a character like be like Carver, as soon as you agree to do anything, you're just inviting trouble into your life. So, uh, yeah, so he takes the offers to, to help this woman when you meet on the train, up getting caught up in a whole mess of trouble. So, he then has to find his way out of, and I get to play with his with his uh, sarcastic ghosts and sort of the ambiguously supernatural themes and stuff, like in Manifest Recall and and so on. And there's lots of violence and mayhem, so hopefully people will enjoy it for the same reasons they enjoyed Manifest Recall. Excuse me. Yeah, I think uh, that sounds awesome. And as a big fan of the first, I'm. I'm excited that, you know, we get a second one and hopefully many more to come. Um, and two, I just have to say, because I know we've talked online a little bit, but I've never, I don't think I've ever mentioned it, man, that one scene in manifest recall and no spoilers for people who haven't read it. But, um, I think you'll probably know which one I'm talking about. That thing still (laughs) sticks with me to this day. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, to be honest, that was the uh, that was the one thing that made me question a little bit whether I would write anymore, because there's that particular scene and that sort of it's you know it smashes you right in the middle of the book. It's a real catalyzing event for everything that goes on, um, and it's kind of one of the things that really made that book stand out. And it's every single person who reviewed that book or talked about it mentioned. Um, or sort of at least alluded to it, um, and I, I and you can't do that again. So you know, there's there's no way that you can deliver that kind of a punch more than once with sort of with a character or a situation. I mean, you can you can find all sorts of new versions, you know, new punches, new twists, and new turns, things to to keep people entertained reading along. Um, but I was slightly dubious. It's like, well, if people are going to be reading and anticipating, when, when's the big hit? When's the big hit? It, it's, it's, it's a different sort of a book, you know. So um, hopefully with that happening in Manifest Recall, hopefully that's established the character and the situation that we're in. And from here on, you know, his story will progress and, and people will go along for the ride. But, uh, but yeah, that, that, was a, that was a hard scene to write and uh it does kind of stick with me as well yeah i I definitely hear you about how um you can't really do that again but i feel like you know it kind of it kind of made for a very powerful origin story. And I know, I think I, I know Shane will probably chime in too, but we're really looking forward to seeing what's next for uh, Eli Carver. Yeah. It's like, uh, there's always a, I know even without ha- without it being in my hand yet that there's going to be a variety of new characters, and that excites me. Um, and it also excites me speculating how you're going to make people dead around Eli, because people do get dead around him quite a bit. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, it's we're really looking forward to it, and I know that anybody who read that first book is really, really looking forward to it. You know, because a good portion of us still jump in and and pimp that book all the time because it's a great fucking book. You know, so well, thank you, and I really appreciate that because you guys doing that stuff is what that book is going. So the fact that people do enjoy a book and get behind it like that is fantastic. So I really hope that you're doing. You, you do enjoy the follow-up. It's uh, yeah, it goes in a slightly different direction, and it's um, but as you say, that's, I mean, it's a good way of looking at it. Manifest Recall um, is the origin story of Eli Carver, so everything from here is a development from that point. So hopefully, um, I'm I'm taking people on a good ride, and they're going to enjoy it. I'm going to. I know that. Um, <laughs> so. Um, I see we're, we're already three minutes past when I said I'd let you escape. That's um, right. I, got, I got a little bit of time. It's okay. We can, uh, we can take our time winding up. Okay. Um, I was just wondering, uh, was just going to ask, uh, is there anything else coming down the pike that you haven't shared that you can share or none of my fucking business? Or? <laughs> <laughs> um, there's there's not, a, not a lot um, that I... That I, I have in any type of concrete news that, that I am allowed to share at this stage. Um, the Recall Night, which is that, that Manifest Recall sequel, um, should hopefully be out mid-year. I think we're looking at around about July-ish um, for that. I can't be I can't be sure. We haven't quite pinned that down yet. Um, David Wood and I did have been working on uh, a prequel novella for the Jake Crowley series, um, which is sort of like an early part of. Uh, Jake Crowley's life after he gets out of the army and trying to find his feet. Um, we've just finished that, so that should that should be out anytime soon. We should have that book out, um, which is sort of like a Jake Crowley zero. It's about a forty-three sort of like art novel, um, which uh, will hopefully appeal to the people who enjoy that character. Um, but otherwise, there's there's nothing fixed on the horizon. I do have a novel out to market my age at the moment, so. And, you know, slay chickens for me and do all the various rituals of luck because um, we're hoping to try to score a, like, a, we're, with these sorts of things, you know, it's great working with your press and they do amazing work. Um, but every, you know, with every new thing, you sort of try and you hit up those majors again, see if you can get someone to buy it with a, with a bigger budget and a bigger advance and a bigger market, um, sort of budget behind them and the opportunity to get on bookstore, bookshop, bookstore shelves again, um, just because that's great for career, but it's also great for your practice, you know, so, um, so I've got a, a novel out there at the moment that's, uh, that my agent's shopping around that would be great for nice big deal on it, um, and sort of increase the audience, basically, it's, it's always, that's always what we're aiming for as, as writers is to have an increased audience you want to be read by more and more people that that's the engine of career um and other than that one that's out um i'm just about to i've finished another standalone uh horror novel that i'm just about to rebrand um and polish up because it's got some problems with it with me ironing out but um hopefully i'll have another the novel finished sometime in the next two or three months that uh, will then be also available to go out into the world and see if you can find a home. So, yeah, all that stuff, staying busy, basically. 
Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, with some super exciting stuff. Um, let me interject real quick here. Uh, the, the David Wood books we're talking about, the ones he's written with David Wood, um, build his action and action adventure type stuff. But, uh, Hey, monsters, man. And I think most yeah. Alan's horror fans will also like his books with David Wood. Yeah, particularly the Sam, because there's two series that Dave and I write, the Sam Aston Adventures, no, the Sam Aston Investigations, um, Sam Aston is, uh, they're monster books, so yeah, that, there's definitely a lot of crossover there. Um, with the Jay Crowley books, um, they follow sort of occult themes and stuff, so horror fans who like a bit of action adventure and secret societies, hit rooms, rap book stuff, with a bit of, uh, sort of occult, uh, mythology going along with it, then yeah. Yeah, and those are the ones I've read are those Sam Aston ones and um they they appealed to me as a, a horror fan and as well as well as a um action adventure fan. You know. Because yeah. well, I first I one have... of those primary, so that's the place to start with there is a group of that's, uh, that's the first one of those to start with. Um, Rich, you got anything else you want to jump in here real quick? No, I uh, just want to, uh, again, thank uh, thank you, Alan, for hanging out with us tonight. It was a blast. Um, big fan of your books, and we've enjoyed talking to you on Twitter, so it was cool to kind of get to hang out with you in a more live setting. Oh, hey, one right, thing, though, before, before you leave, can you do one thing for us? <laughs> <laughs> can you can you impersonate can you impersonate an Australian accent? <laughs> oh, no, never mind. <laughs> you know, it's a really interesting thing because I I grew up as far as all my English friends are concerned, I sound really Australian. They all they all take the piss out of me all the time for how Australian I sound. Everyone in Australia goes on about how British I sound. Um, <laughs> But I'm, I'm terrible at an Australian accent. I can do all sorts of British accents. I can do, you know, rest country and all that. But comes to doing an Australian accent, it's bad, man. It sounds, it sounds like an American Australian accent. That's how bad. You know, that's like me when I, I'm, I'm Irish, but when I try to do an Irish accent, I just sound like an idiot. <laughs> it's like, I mean, nobody recognizes it, not even me. <laughs> so anyway we are we'll let you get going alan and we greatly greatly appreciate this um i will warn you in advance when um the new manifest book comes out uh we will be victimizing you again as soon as we possibly can <laughs> um so more than happy more than happy to come back it's been great excellent excellent thanks man no worries. You're welcome. Talk to you guys on Twitter, no doubt. Oh yeah, definitely. Probably sooner than you want to. <laughs> feel better, man. Yeah, feel better, Alan. I appreciate it. Yeah. As I face the dawn of the day, your passion's known, God's rhythm.